Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Have you got time to get ill? After everything we've been through in the last couple of years, have you got the time, the patience, the bandwidth or the resilience to come down with a heavy cold? I don't have time to get ill. And it's always so unnerving when the sniffles begin. Oh no, here we go. Check the diary. What can I cancel? What is a three-line whip? Will everyone in the house get it? Ugh, no. This is exactly the point when you bang a leapfrog immune. Well, never let it be said that we're not rock and roll, but when we say bang, we mean chew. They taste quite nice, actually. And then weirdly, the sniffle never turns into anything. It just sort of fizzles out. Lactoferrin is the science bit, a protein your body makes daily that shores up your defences against illness. But let's face it, like everything in our lives, our stores can get a little depleted. Leapfrog gives you a blast of lactoferrin, which can help stop annoying bugs in their tracks. So we are delighted that Leapfrog are sponsoring this podcast and are offering listeners 15% off at leapfrogremedies.com with the code MIDELT15. So if you haven't got time to get ill, look after yourself and your body's natural immune system with Leapfrog. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily and I'm absolutely fine. But last week on the podcast, I sort of rather grandly intimated that I hadn't done my roots and that I was absolutely fine with it. And maybe this was the point where I would stop caring. And dear You would be free. You would be free. <laughs> I know. I was like, here it is. Here is the point where you stop giving a fuck, like genuinely stop giving a fuck about this stuff. And I thought, oh, my God. And at the weekend, I looked at myself in the mirror and went, oh, my God, the fucks are back. I give. I give. I surrender. So I've redone my hair. So and then I feel both simultaneously relieved that I no longer look. I look less harried, like a harried and but also sad, like somehow I've let down the sisterhood again. Oh, <laughs> again. Is... <laughs> Yet again. <laughs> there she goes, just letting down the sisterhood at every opportunity with her shaving and her and her root dying. Anyway, so there you go. That's me. Plus, I'm in a muck sweat because of our technological hitches. So apologise if there's any blips. Annabelle, how are you? I am absolutely fine, but I'm in a really odd mood today. And it's not odd interesting it's odd, sort of heavy um, and locked in, and I feel achy and very uneasy. And my tinnitus is is sort of whining away in, in stereo, which I know is a symptom of perimenopause, uh, before you write in, although thank you for writing in. Really, all I want is a darkened room, but I also want to feel less lonely. So how the fuck is that going to work? Regular listeners will know that I'm struggling with connection to other people at the moment, as so many of us are. But I wonder if I'm feeling so strange today because I read a remarkable book yesterday, a book by a remarkable writer, a remarkable person. This week, we are delighted to welcome a true voyager to the podcast. Clover Stroud travels to the very sharpest edges of human emotion in her writing, taking us with her as she tracks herself through the dark woods of grief, loss and what it means to love. You're going to be hearing so much about her book, The Red of My Blood, which is about the death of her sister and is out on March the 10th, because it is brilliant, truthful, unflinching and devastating. The sort of writing that is sparklingly easy to read and yet very hard to think about. Clover, welcome. And uh, how are you? I, well, I did have an absolutely fine, but I'm absolutely fine, but I'm actually already in tears just listening to you <laughs> saying all of that, I have to say. But um. You know, I'm absolutely fine, but I live in the countryside and it's February and and I just went for a a walk, which I thought would be a nice sort of after the hell of getting my children to school, a nice 
relaxing walk with my dogs through the field and I'm now basically completely covered in mud. So apart from the mud, I'm fine. <laughs> and the tears. That's the, mud that's, and the, that's tears. the title of your next book, The Mud and the Tears. <laughs> One of the things that I suppose sort of worries me for you, if that's not inappropriate about the book, is how many people are going to come at you with their tears. Because um, Emily and I cried at you before we even <laughs> pressed record. We were crying this morning when we were talking about what we were going to talk to you about. I mean, honestly, it's like it's, we were crying yesterday when we were reading the through the book we were crying I mean it's endless I cried when I messaged you on Instagram whenever it was in December and I said please come on the podcast because everything that you write on I mean just on Instagram is amazing and I want you to talk about the book anyway just tears everywhere are, are you okay with everybody else's tears yeah I mean the crying I cry very very easily myself and I'm very comfortable with tears and very kind of in a way, really very reassured by them, actually, I suppose, in some way. And I was, um, somebody messaged me on Instagram. I love talking to people about the book on Instagram, or just talking about life with people on Instagram. And somebody messaged me saying, how do I, I'm trying to write, how do I plug into my emotions? I can't, I don't know how to plug into my emotions. And um, I said, well, <laughs> I, I kind of live in a state of being plugged into the mains on my emotions all the time <laughs> um I did suggest that she read some poetry and listen to some music as a way of like plugging further into her emotions but um I mean I'm really looking forward to talking to people about it one of the things about the death of somebody is that you are so very alone and society sort of wants you to be alone as well you know we don't we don't know how to connect with people when somebody that they love has died and we think oh we mustn't disturb them we must leave them and this book is a kind of violent loud glittering I hope shout of connection with other people and I really really wanted the book to be about to be about life as much as death. I mean, I wrote it in the year after my sister had died very suddenly from from um, breast cancer. She'd been diagnosed in 2015, but just before she died, which was in December 2019, she had been given a really good prognosis and, and like several more years. And then she suddenly died of liver failure. So she, we literally found out the day before um, we were told that she had a day to live. So the book is, I wrote it in that year after her death. And I really, I really look forward to people's tears. I really look forward to the kind of connections. Um, but I know it is, yeah, I, I mean, from early readings of people like yourselves, it's so lovely to know that it is having a strong effect on people and it is connecting with people. There is that extraordinary that I mean, the book is sort of a, is, is a tapestry of extraordinary moments. But just hearing you talk about that, that moment where she says one day, I think she says to your yeah. father one day, what do you do with one day? Um, and it, how do you begin? So, so no processing could happen the, before that yeah, day was up. There was no processing at all. And I've thought about that so much. And I'm I'm really pleased for Nell that she actually didn't know. I mean, I think that probably subconsciously, probably consciously, she did no, she was in quite a lot of pain that autumn. She kept complaining about pain in her legs. And the doctors, um, her oncologist, who she had a great relationship with and really trusted, said, no, no, it's not to do with your cancer and everything is fine. And as a result, she did have a really brilliant and characteristically extravagant and kind of alive autumn, the last months of her life. She went off to Cuba with her boyfriend, who was Cuban, who was the strong man from... She had a circus from the circus. He was a strong man from the circus and her children. And she went off to um, Switzerland buying horses. She went off to France, like, casting acts for the circus. She was taking helicopter. We went on holiday in the summer. We went up to Norfolk and she, like, 
got a helicopter up to Norfolk. She was going and buying... A few weeks before she died, we had to do a photo shoot for something. She said, I've got absolutely fuck all to wear. And she went off to Bista Village and bought, like, a a, um, a sequined green Gucci uh, shell suit, which was absolutely amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, also, then when I was, like, sorting out her clothes after she died with my stepmother, I went into her bedroom and there was, like... When she... These this words I've got absolutely fuck all to wear really rang in my ears because there was racks and racks and racks of like Chanel, Matthew Williamson, Prada, Marnie. She absolutely loved spending money on clothes. But the so in a way she had like a really amazing the last few months of her life were really incredible and she was producing loads of art and she was very happy in lots of ways. But I do think that she probably did know. But it meant that she didn't have to go well, I've got six months or three. I mean, what do you do with six months? What do you do with three months? And in a way, arriving at the hospital and being told that there was a day was the most sort of terrifying moment of my life. And I felt as though I was standing, we were in Gloucester Hospital, I felt I was standing in the corridor with a with a massive red train careering towards me or a bull galloping towards me. And I was standing in the middle of the corridor going stop you know this wasn't supposed to be happening now this was supposed to happen in in four or five years time when we were going to be ready but the thing I wonder is like are you ever ready you know is there a point when you're ever ready to say okay death come and do your thing and take Nell away you know is there ever a moment when it's going to be okay I don't think there is I mean my father died on my 27th birthday and he had been Ill, and it doesn't feel like such a wrong death because he was 60, not 46. But, you know, something in, in, the, in around Nell where the death feels so wrong because yeah. she was so young. But he had been incredibly ill for about mm. 20 years. He'd had a heart transplant, which had given mm. him some time. Then the drugs would make him toxic. And he was so often mm. on the brink of death that by the time he died, it, his death felt like an impossibility. Mm. So it wasn't, it, so that great lead up to it with the constant near disasters didn't act as, as, as a soothing path towards the inevitable at all. It just made it feel like it would never happen. That's so interesting. That's so interesting because my mum had this horrific riding accident when I was 16 and she, like your father, I mean, she had different issues, but she had acute brain damage for 22 years and she lived sort of on the brick. She couldn't, after she woke up from her coma, she couldn't, walk, talk, feed herself, she was doubly incontinent. So she, and she was constantly on the brink of death as well. There was pneumonia and epilepsy and lots of things which, which gave her very kind of complicated conditions. And in a way, I actually really wanted her. I, I mean, I could say this about 10 years after the accident, I kind of wanted her to die, I wanted her suffering to be over. I wanted all of our suffering to be over. But when she died, I didn't, it, that I wasn't, even though she had been so close to it for 22 years, but I wasn't ready still when it happened. And the actual kind of physical loss of her, the fact that she, even though I hadn't even been able to speak to her for 22 years because of her brain damage, but I still, I still wasn't ready. So I think the kind of like stark fact of death is something as humans that we're always kind of holding out against. We're always resisting. And that's, the nature of being a human being, I suppose. And there are some there are some brilliant moments of surrender to that in your book, where you basically realise that death is everything, actually. Mm. And that once you, rather than assuming that it's, that there's something after, if we imagine that we're sort of running parallel to it all the time, mm. and in fact, mm. in some ways, that's sort of comforting, and maybe that's a new way that we should look at death, 
you know, as a society, as opposed to this sort of kind of final and then then an after situation. I don't know. Yeah, I think that we want to resist it. We want to pretend like sex that it's not happening. <laughs> you know, it's a thing that it's, we you're don't very good talk on about. sex and death as well. But we'll get to that afterwards. <laughs> but um, Nell's death was so horrifying. It was so life breakingly terrible it was so it felt so unendurable that I felt that in the process of walking through that year after her life I had to kind of reimagine my life completely because everything seemed so fucked and so wrong and life seemed so dark yet I was still alive and I looked at other people who'd lost people that they really loved and and who were further down the line like two years down the line three years down the line you know and I'd saw people living lives that looked vibrant and beautiful and fun and just ridiculous as human lives are. And I just remember thinking, how the hell are they doing it? What are they doing? What's the secret? Like, they haven't died of sadness. They haven't died of misery. They haven't killed themselves. They haven't, like, given up on life. So something must happen. And I was really, really curious about what happened during that process. And I thought something extraordinary must exist the other side of this acute pain and horror that I'm in right now and writing the book I suppose was like trying to work out what that was exactly and how to get to that place and I use the metaphor of like the forest we're going into a kind of very very I have a very vivid image in my mind of a very beautiful um, thorns and roses and kind of green mystical forest that I was in that was also a very dangerous perilous place and I had to find my find my way through that and that is the extraordinary thing of being a human being is that you find your way through and you do survive and you do <laughs> I hate using this phrase for obvious reasons but like you thrive not just survive <laughs> basically you do and that's what's really really like the incredible extraordinary miracle of being a human and it really made me believe in the human spirit as well because like rationally it feels as though we should just give up we should just crumble when something so awful happens and yet we go on to you know continue to create lives that are interesting and vivid and valuable and um I suppose I, you know, that's the, that I, I look forward to connecting with people about that because it is such an optimistic message as well. You are totally changed by the death of somebody you love and life in a way is dented and broken in some ways and yet it is an incredible opportunity to kind of smash your life apart and put it together in a new mosaic of colour and... um I suppose that's what I'm, st you know, Nell's been dead for two years. Even saying Nell's been dead, I mean, it still makes me feel, it's still physiologically, I can feel, as I said that, I felt myself kind of resisting it. I still feel a terrible shock about it, but I know that I am creating a life that is beautiful and vivid and that I am proud of. And sometimes I feel I will see her again and that I want to say to her, this is what I did with my life and I want her to be pleased with that and I think she would be pleased well I mean it you know I think I think you know the way that you've honored her through the book and I'm sure in your life is mm. isn't is it I've never read anything like that you know that the way that you've you've created this this living moving thing you know we think that grief is gray and black and people should be left in the dark to do it yeah. 
and the book pulsates with colour and the violence and um, the, the glitter and electricity and all these, as you say, sort of, you know, slightly witchy metaphysical crows and trees and horses and mm. flashes that run that run throughout mm. it. And, uh, and I just wonder, at what point did you start writing? I mean, the days after, Nell died just before Christmas, so there was like the, the kind of totally surreal, weird thing of going into Christmas with, with and Nell actually hated Christmas, and we always had a joke about what was the worst possible thing you could do for Christmas, and then I just remember thinking, <laughs> fuck Nell. <laughs> <laughs> final act of mass Christmas sabotage. <laughs> but then I was also very aware of like there was one day when I was walking through Oxford a couple of weeks after she had died just before Christmas and I was walking down the pavement and then suddenly there was this tangerine in the in the gutter it was a bright orange tangerine with a little green bit on the top and it was so resting and weird and extraordinary and a, and a black cat ran in front of me with like bright green eyes and as Nell would say it was just like tripping I mean it was so kind of um, surreal and 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 strange, and I and I felt as though there were all these moments kind of suddenly invading my mind all the time of like bright colour and oddness, and I didn't. I'd been writing something else, and I'd been thinking about another a different idea for a book, and obviously that just completely fell away. And then I had this idea that I have to, in the sort of spring after she died, I thought I have to write about death, I have to write about this process. But I didn't actually start writing it until July, so it was like a few months after lockdown had started. And I went to stay in a completely empty house, and it was very some very, very, very hot days in July. And I was staying in this house that Nell had really loved, and it was a big house, and um, I was the only person staying there. And I walked around this house, and it was quite spooky staying in a very big house on your own. And I knew that Nell spent a lot of time in this garden, walking amongst, like, the rosemary bushes and underneath this beautiful fig tree. And I just had this really quite extraordinary experience of feeling as though some part of her was kind of channeling through me creatively. And I wrote the first chapter of the book in that July. And that first chapter kind of sets up the kind of strange, quite not psychedelic, but almost psychedelics at times, it, um, you know, kind of character of the book, I suppose. And then I wrote it throughout you know, that weird year that we were all in that that kind of strange vortex of the first year of lockdown. And in a way, lockdown was quite... I think it was quite good feeling separated from the rest of the world as well, creatively. I think it helped me to go into the space of being totally with Nell. And what I was trying to do in the writing was to... Um, what I was trying to do during that year was, like, searching for her because... When somebody dies, that feeling of like, where where have you gone? You were like this massive person for me. Where have you gone? And that's something that, you know, so many people talk about. That sort of the physical shock of just what's happened, you know, what's happened? Where's that person gone? And and I was I was searching and searching for her and trying to um talk to her and I'd sit outside smoking, feeling furious and miserable and like I'd talk to her. And then you want you want a kind of heavenly voice to answer you. You want the sky to crack open. You want some kind of sign. And of course, there is no 
kind of hologram. That's what you want. Is there like a heaven? I write about that in the book, like a heavenly hologram. Of course, that doesn't. <laughs> there is no fucking hologram. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> Sometimes you might suddenly see a star like twinkling a little bit more. And it was really what I was trying to do was to figure out where she was, and it was in the writing that she kind of came back to me. It was, and it was also slightly when I stopped searching so intently and stopped trying to listen for her voice, which just never answered me, obviously, that I kind of found her again, and that was a beautiful, extraordinary process. And it, but it took, it took, you know, the the course of that year to to get to that, and the writing was. Nell was such a creative person. She was like insanely creative. She was. She had a circus. She was an artist. She was always sewing, writing. She'd written numerous books, and um, I did feel as though something of her was coming to me in some way or another. And and I felt kind of joy, not joined with her exactly, but like that I could communicate with her in some way via that creativity, which was a pretty awesome place to get to. I think as well. What's so incredible about the quest that you went on and it's so I mean there's lots of references to sort of Gawain and Lancelot and I really felt those viscerally it's a bit like oddly the cartoon of Sleeping Beauty when he's hacking through and the the dragon is snapping at his you know at, at, anyway mm. but um and I felt very you know it was in, it was incredible that but but also what I found amazing is how helpful and sounds so lame but how helpful it is to for people who know people who are grieving that book not just mm. for people who mm. are you know in the woods themselves but actually because you do you do so much good work about how people respond to you and what people should say or not even what people should say but what, what how you react to people saying things and I have a you know really dear friend whose whose mother died and I know she's devastated and I feel like I have learned so much about how I can move forward side by side with her in a way that's so I love hearing that. and I love the idea of actually being able to exactly give it to people who not just like here this is your for your loss but here this is for your friend's loss or this is for your mm. whatever you know because mm. it is it's such an act of generosity in the way that you sort of cracked yourself open like a nut in order for other people to understand yeah so that we could all read about um and understand the fireworks that are going off inside a person who mm. you describe yourself as 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 trudging like an old woman mm. but none less this this internal life is happening because I think that when someone you know loses somebody somebody dies your instinct can be to run Mm, it can be to run to just say you know I'm so sorry for your loss Mm. I can't imagine what you're going through Mm. people keep saying to you in the book Mm. I can't imagine what you're going through Clover Mm. I would never cope if my sister died I would not cope um, and, and then to and then to run, but I think you sort of have given us the right to just understand that we could just sort of sit beside somebody. Yes, I think that that's it's really wonderful to hear that because because I do so want this to help people because I think that when you see somebody when you're with somebody who is mourning who's grieving, you sort of think that you have to be quiet or you have to leave them, exactly. And to know that what's happening inside them is, as you say, this kind of violent breaking open. There are, like, fireworks going off inside them and they're feeling the pain of that as well. And 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 to, to allow, and allow people to kind of um, be present to their pain and not to be scared by it. You know, I think we're just so scared of feelings we're so so terrified like don't you know don't cry don't be sad that's our kind of impulse to say to a child who's crying um and one of the big things people kept saying to me after Nella died like oh I can't begin to imagine how you're feeling 
And I remember feeling absolutely furious with this because I just thought, well, go and read Hamlet or go and read some poetry or use your fucking imagination. And that was part of the reason I wanted to write it was to say, this is what this is what it feels like. This is the pain. And this is also the kind of weird energy and excitement and oddness of what your friend whose who's pain you can't imagine might be going through. And I really hope that it will sort of help people to feel less embarrassed by their weirdness, you know, feel less embarrassed by their crying, less embarrassed by their sudden outbursts, because it does, grief makes you suddenly, I mean, I've done it already during this, during our conversation now, it makes you suddenly break down, it makes you suddenly, like, want to fall on the floor and, and kind of beat your chest, it makes you want to... I understood so much more about the kind of rituals of death. And and, uh, Nell and I actually talked about this after our mum died, saying that we would love to be dressed all in black with, like, black knickers and black shoes, black socks, a kind of Victorian, you know, the Victorian idea of modern. Paint everything black. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Nell, in her typical theatrical way, said she wanted to dress her whole house and have, like, black satin curtains. and But you do want to kind of focus your pain on something. And yet we have to go out into the world again and again and try and be normal when you are feeling about as abnormal as it's possible to feel. Um, and so communicating that felt like an important part of the, of the book, I suppose. I think one of the things about the generosity of the way that you communicate it and one of the odd things about reading it is that you are reading it, you may well be crying as you're reading it, but you're reading a book that is exciting. It is. Mm-hmm. It is very... Strange, and it makes me feel sort of a bit guilty and odd to say that. Reading a book about grief and death and pain and loss, and and you talk about the the hot sparks of trauma that are molding you into a new shape. And as a mm. reader, it's exciting to read, um, mm. and that's I mean that's testament to you as a writer. But that's an extraordinary achievement when you're writing about something that is generally witnessed as a heavy, dull thing. Mm. Yes, and and. Um... As you said earlier, that like books about grief are you normally black and grey. There's a, they're about a quietening. They're about a kind of muting, a dulling, and the and actually what you're feeling is totally, totally the opposite. And the kind of I suppose the thing that drives the book, nothing really happens in the book. There is no plot. There's no kind of you know not some big revelation of anything in any way. But the emotion that's driving the book is very. Um, passionate and strong and and violent and you know knowing that that's what the reader is is connecting to is is lovely for me to hear as well because of course you know just just getting through a normal day as a human being you know let alone dealing with grief as well it just our our normal internal lives can be so weird and extraordinary and so all over the place. If you put the death of somebody you love in there as well, I hope it's not surprising that there is kind of real excitement because it is real yeah. life as well and all of the energy of life. Yeah, and you still have to do all the things. You still have to you know, get excited by, you know, what your children are doing. You still have to have sex with your partner or whatever. You still have to do, you know, you mm. can't, you don't cloister yourself away in this black house or one, one doesn't. Mm. And, um, and mm. you're right, you know. I was always amazed, you know, after my father died, just at, at how normal everything, you know, there I am, a walking, talking, normal human. 
and uh, and despite what's going on internally or whatever you know if you looked at me in the street you wouldn't think there there goes someone who's just lost someone they love or whatever but mm. at the same time you feel like that's all you're emanating it's a really odd sort of sense of kind of what people see yeah do you think I mean it, it sort of makes you think about kind of rituals of grief which we certainly don't have in this country but like keening you know or very very public mourning or allowing people to kind of scream you know it makes you feel scream and rip their clothes scream and rip their clothes rend your garments yeah Yeah, I completely agree and also how wonderful to not feel like you have to walk exactly the same way get onto the Victoria Mm. line or the train Mm. or whatever in the same way but it would be amazing if someone just sort of yeah if you pulled your skin off and... But I, I think that once you've gone through this process as well, and hopefully in reading this book, people will, will understand it even if they haven't done, which is that when somebody dies, you join... You know, I often think about battle and soldiers and warriors in life just getting through the day as a mother quite frankly makes me think of those things but like <laughs> is in death in the death of somebody you love it's as though you are walking across a big open plain and that the person that you love dies and you then join millions of people who are walking beside you who you didn't really know were there before you didn't know what they were feeling and then suddenly they're all visible to you and you're all walking together and to be able to share and talk about and uh, experience that grief and pain together is incredibly helpful because doing it on your own is so sort of lonely and painful and I in life always want want to find and talk to and ask incredibly personal questions of the people who've been through all the really hard stuff you know those are the people that I feel drawn to and I love this I love the idea of this kind of silent army around us that we become part of and we resist it we don't want to be part of that army we we want the people that we love to be alive but we are all going to join that army at some point you know we are all moving in the same direction we're all going to lose people that we love it is an absolute fact and I guess the last two years has also brought that you know made that even more clear to us it's brought the kind of narrative of death around although I don't know if we're any better equipped to deal with it than we were a couple of years ago well I mean as you said earlier I mean is are we ever, are we ever? is there such a thing mm. as a as a good mm. as a good one really I think talking about talking about death though talk having conversations about it having I mean I'm always surprised by how many people think say to me oh I don't know how to talk about death I'm so scared of it I talk about yeah. it with like my kids my friends as much as I can, basically. I think also because I because Nell didn't really want to talk about it and because she had secondary cancer, you can't make somebody talk... You know, she, it wasn't wouldn't have been right to talk to her about it if she didn't want to. And I wish that I'd had more conversations with her around it. And I hope that that my children are kind of... Well, they're definitely used to used to a conversation around it and we spend quite a lot of time at her grave not in a morbid way in a very alive way in a totally Mm. you know living and vivid way I try and bring a sense of death and the kind of nature of death and the the absolute permanence of death and the invisible everything as I wrote about at the center of everything into our lives as well to kind of try and prepare them and me and us all if it is possible to prepare to try and do, do different way of looking at the world, mm. isn't it? You mm. talk, and 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 you you mentioned in your book that 
having suffered from depression before, that you're worried that this is going to tip over into that mm. because if that happens, five children, work, a husband, the grief, nothing will be possible. Yeah. So were you sort of monitoring yourself for that? Were you aware of, of, of how you were going to track whether this turned from grief into, into mental illness? Yeah, definitely, especially um, during the first sort of... Um, Nell died in December and it was through till the autumn that I felt really 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 pretty terrible for long periods of time and I was very aware of that and I was very aware and Pete my husband was also if there were days which there were days when I just I didn't want you know you can't get up you don't want to face things you don't want to you just want to not exist anymore that kind of feeling and it was during the autumn when I had tried to talk to Nell and tried to kind of communicate with her and obviously failed to, that I that feeling of sort of stopping looking for her and almost thinking a bit like, oh, fuck it, I don't, I can't, I, I don't want to be sort of dealing with my dead sister anymore. And I spent, I was spending more and more time outdoors and I know that is nature as a healer is a, is a kind of a well, well-known salve, I suppose. But the... I bought some Shetland ponies. I live in the countryside. I grew up with horses and I bought these Shetland ponies and I spent a hell of a lot of time outside. And just being forced to be outside and go and kind of trudge around in the mud really, really helped me. And I suppose maybe that's one of the reasons why we are bad at death is because we are, we can be pretty divorced from the physical world as well. And that was like a massive source of salvation basically and for my mental health definitely because you know what's shocking is that if you go to the doctor I didn't actually go to the doctor because I knew what the doctor would say would be to take antidepressants and I think that like being prescribed antidepressants for grief there are circumstances in which it would be necessary but grief is a process that you have to go into and you have to kind of you have to face it and the idea of taking antidepressants to sort of stop it to kind of soften it feels like for me it would have been incredibly unhelpful even though it might have been tempting at the worst points in the pain you know during the the first few months after her death um I mean I definitely know that when my father died I didn't deal with the grief at all I had a young baby and I poured everything into that sort of into what what I thought was a decision to choose life rather than death mm. and, and, to, and to focus on that. And five years later, I started hearing voices and had a sort of catastrophic panic attacks because I had all of this sadness or confusion or loss of identity, whatever it is that I had done to try and shove it down, came back up yeah. in t- like 10 million times. So, I mean, you know, I really admire the way that you, you know, walk through the fire because because I know that I didn't do it and I paid I think you know I paid a price for it at at some point Mm. um and it's it is important and we are yeah we're bad at it we're bad at it the other thing that I wanted to say is that you know the book is so much about love as well Mm. I mean love in a kind of you know love in the shadow of loss but still love and it has prompted me to (laughs) send text messages to people that I really love that I may not speak to tell them you know I just want you to know I that love I you. love you and that I will always love you and that I have always loved you. And I think, you know, you know, that moment in the book when you have that sort of breakthrough with the therapist where you say, this is what I want her to know and this is what I want, you know, and you do think, oh my God, we are so also so bad. We take it so for granted, you know. 
and that it is really important to stop and say, I just want you to know that I love you. Definitely, definitely. And I, I mean, that's the thing. That if I could say anything to Nell now, it would be that. And and it does it does make you sort of feel like you want to communicate that more strongly. And I wrote, write about saying to my friends, because often on phone calls people go, oh, love you love you but if you say I love you it kind of it sort of almost like shocks people a bit as well and I think it's really really important and it can feel a bit embarrassing to start with it actually it's so sweet I sometimes now hear my 21 year old son who is very very loved saying to his friends I love you which I just think oh that's that's some good work has gone on there definitely I'm so pleased about that but um I think communicating love is kind of the answer to death, I suppose, really, isn't it? Well, it's a better answer than just assuming that everybody that you love is going to drop dead mm. in a minute. Mm. Because I think you could probably get into quite a paranoid state as well. So maybe a better solution mm. is just to communicate yeah. love <laughs> really enthusiastically all the time. <laughs> but um, yeah. but you, 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 say, you say that people have, have, have said to you, you, you write this in your book, you know, how, how can you do this? How can you write this? Don't you mind other people knowing so much have you no shame you know about 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 what you've about writing about these very difficult painful things and and what do you what do you say to that uh nothing that I'm writing about is anything nothing that I everything that I write about is something that you have probably experienced or felt or thought about too that I'm not writing about anything at all that is other apart from the human experience and that uh, writing openly about sex and death and drugs and loss and motherhood and marriage is incredibly, I think it's very liberating for other people because it's that feeling of I am normal and I am human, well, whatever normal is, I'm human, basically. And I don't feel any shame about anything I, I write about for that reason because it is, it's the same as what you two have experienced. It's the same as what you two have felt and I think that by saying it, then you also prevent, not prevent, but like, I don't feel like you would judge somebody for admitting to, to an entirely human experience. Yeah, no, I completely agree. But people are curious as to how, I think it's, a, I th- actually, I think what they're saying is, how can you be so brave? Yes. Because that's the thing that resonates throughout mm. this book. And this is the thing that really makes me want to howl is, Clover, your sheer courage. Yes, so, so brave. Well, it's funny because we're all sitting here crying at each other. <laughs> um, I was, I was very lucky. I I was very very, and this goes back to love the loving. I was very 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 loved by my mother and father. And as a child growing up, I was given huge huge amounts of love. And what happened to mum was really horrific like having a parent who is suddenly profoundly brain damaged and the complete loss of home and the complete loss of security and the complete loss of your mother and um and then seeing her suffering for a very long time was a very was a very frightening it was it was more frightening than her death because it was so ongoing and then dealing with Nell's death and processing her death and the loss of her is you know proves to me again and again how extremely hard life is but if you have that kind of love if you are you know if you are loved by somebody in that way then I think it kind of gives you a courage I suppose and um and I feel incredibly grateful to my parents for having 
set me up, I suppose, and made me feel, made me feel that I can do stuff and be stuff. And I think it is, that, and that's why I feel so kind of passionate about love as well and, and how important that it is. But also, I think because I had to deal with mum's accident every single day, like because she was alive in this very damaged state, in order to survive it, I had to kind of, for me, head straight into it again and again and again. And in a way, with into the trauma of it. And I also think that the traumatic experience totally became, because I was a teenager when it happened, I was 16, so I completely think that kind of a traumatic experience became something very, very familiar to me, basically. And in a way, that has been quite useful and quite kind of um, inspiring. And when, it was weird, because in 2017, my husband had a terrible, terrible accident and he broke both his legs in a terrorist scare, which happened on the day of mum's accident on the anniversary of mum's accident and um he was in a wheelchair for several months he's completely fine now and he can walk and it's fine but I got this phone call being told you know your husband's like possibly paralyzed and and then he was in a wheelchair for six months and he was he was at home and all the all of that involved and um people said oh my god this is just awful. Poor you. This is absolutely terrible. And I remember thinking, no, no, this is, I'm, I can really deal with this. I can, uh, this is a completely <laughs> familiar okay. place to be. <laughs> and, um, okay, I get this. and, um, I'm not saying that's a good thing to like for, tra- for trauma <laughs> to be a familiar place, but it is, it's what my life is. And so I suppose I've used that in the kind of most, uh, positive ways that I can. Yeah, you have, because you're using it to, you know, you're putting it out there for, for, for us to all experience it. It's... My son was really, one of my sons who's seven, who's who's very big character, he was really, really scared by some little robot or something he'd seen on YouTube. He's been absolutely terrified screaming about it. And um, which the other children think is slightly ridiculous because they say it's not scary at all, but he's got very v- vivid imagination. And he said to me a couple of days ago at the weekend, I'm going to make a Lego model of this little robot that had scared him so much, which I thought was totally brilliant. And I was so pleased that he was kind of creatively, in a way, doing exactly the same thing that I do in my writing, which is facing the thing that scares you the most of all and then trying to turn it into something else and try and turn it into uh, a kind of, you know, dare I even call it like a piece of art and to turn it into some a creative experience basically and in doing so contain that fear and uh, master that fear I mean Clover thank you so much for coming to talk to us I you know I don't know if I don't know if we're going to ever recover from this book I sort of, I sort of, I sort of want to start having spoken to you about it I sort of want to start reading it again and I would yeah, tell too. anybody to get their hands on it The Red of My Blood by Clover Stroud out on March the 10th and um, and I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this but when you write your next book will you come back? <laughs> Definitely <laughs> yes, exactly. I just love these conversations as well I love I love talking about this stuff about the big stuff and in my relationships with my friends or with people that I meet in normal life I always found it really weird weird at like baby groups or even just like in social groups where you meet people that you don't really know and I always find myself immediately asking them all the big stuff about death and sex and life and and that's what I want to kind of like 
get down to straight away so it's been a complete pleasure and a total joy and i and yes i'll i'll come i'll come on and talk to you about this stuff as much as you like basically it's been brilliant oh, amazing <laughs> there's a brilliant bit in the book where you talk about something that your sister and you used to say to each other all the time which is cling on cling on mm, and yes. i really get that and i feel like thank you you've given us permission to cling on cling on in a complete in a beautiful oh, way so thank oh, you it's been a real pleasure thank you both very much thanks Claire, and we wish you all the luck in the world yeah. with the publication of this book And remember, if you don't have time to get ill, get LeapFrog. And there's 15% off for listeners with the code MIDELT15 at leapfrogremedies.com. Stay tuned for our conversation with LeapFrog's founder, Stephanie Drax. Hi, everyone. We are absolutely delighted to introduce our next guest, Stephanie Drax, who is the founder of LeapFrog. Yes, Stephanie. Before we talk about the wonder that is LeapFrog, how does a travel journalist turn into the frontline services against the common cold? Well, it was um, sheer desperation because I had two children at the time um, at nursery, the Petri dish that is nursery. They were picking up every cough, cold bug going, bringing it home. It rampaged through our house and then they skipped off back to school and then repeat. (laughs) And it was nuts and I was looking for a way to stop it. So while I was doing this research and trying a few crazy things, I spoke to a scientist and he said words that are now immortal, but if you really want to knock a cold on the head, you want to try lactoferrin. So what is lactoferrin? So I scratched this word down, I got off the call and I Googled. And lactoferrin is, a protein that exists within all of us. We make it every day. It's at the entry points of our bodies. So our eyes, our nose, our mouth, and the secretions that are there in our tears and our saliva. And it's there to neutralize bugs, germs, bacteria, viruses, as they try to enter the body. It's also in a type of white blood cell called a neutrophil. So if the bug does manage to get in, then that neutrophil will travel to the site of infection, burst open, release loads of lactoferrin and quash it. So it really is part of our frontline defense system for attacking bugs. It's also part of our adaptive immunity. It can modulate our immune system. So if we need to fight against infection, it, it sort of rallies the body. It upregulates the body. And if we need to calm down once the infection is quashed, it calms the body down. It's really clever. We want more lactoferrin, don't we? We want much, much more in an ideal world than our, even, even if it's our healthy body can provide. So how do you turn a random conversation into a scientific formulation into a little quite nice tasting chewable pill yeah so you're right so i mean our lactoferrin levels can be you know quite depleted if we're not sleeping well or eating well or exercising etc so yes sometimes we do need to to back up our body with some extra lactoferrin i read a lot of science um there's uh there's a a website called pubmed where all the the peer-reviewed scientific studies are, and I went through a whole load of them on, on lactoferrin. There, are, there were sort of 8,600 at the time, and now there are many, many more. And a name just kept appearing at the top of them, the ones to do with lactoferrin and the immune system. And it was Dr. Marion Krusel, and he's at the University of Texas, so I called him. <laughs> and I said, Dr. Krusel, am I crazy? I want to start a lactoferrin supplement. And I want it to be chewable because this powder that I tried. When I was interested in trying the lactoferrin, I got sent a sample and it's a very, very fine powder and it sticks to the roof of your mouth. And just to say, you know, it, my husband looked at me and was like, what's that? And I said, it's going to cure a cold. He went, oh yeah. And it really worked for both of us. So 
that's the whole point. After six months of this stuff working again and again and again, I knew I had to start a supplement. And I was owed it. it to, was it stopping you getting a cold or, or making a cold recede more quickly or both? That's a really good question. So what we decided to do, my husband and I beside us, because we really wanted to test it, and my husband doesn't believe in, in fairies at all. <laughs> so we were like, right, let's take this every day and see what happens. So we took it every day, and the kids came home with said snotty noses, and it just bounced off us. We were bulletproof. So after two, three months, and this was sort of end of April, May, June, we're like, oh, well, it's coming into summer you know, let's, let's see, maybe, maybe the season was on, was on its side. So let's stop taking it every day and now just take it as and when. And so then what happened? The kids came home with the colds. We would take it at the very first sign of our own sort of sniffle, then wake up the next day and it was gone. Mm. Gone. And it just kept working again and again and again. And when we ran out, my husband was like, when are we getting more stuff in? I can't <laughs> afford to get sick. I've got too much work on. So I called up this immunologist at the University of Texas and I said, I want to start a supplement that is a chewable lactoferrin tablet. And he smiled and he picked up a bottle on his desk and he showed me his own little bottle of chewable tablets that he himself had made to give to friends and family. No and he said, I don't have time to make a business out of this because I'm too busy in the lab. But if you are going to dedicate all your time to it, I can tell you, it absolutely does work. Do you think that it protects against other things as well as the common cold? Yeah, well, it protects against respiratory tract infections, absolutely. I mean, it can, it can protect against a whole host of things, absolutely. Any, any sort of disease, it's anti-inflammatory as well. So if you have inflammation, um, if, if, if you have autoimmune conditions, it can be great because it can help the body without overstimulating. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So obviously I have a range in mind of what I could do with LeapFrog because there are so many different benefits. It's great for, it's great for the oral microbiome. It's great for cognition. It's great for, for your bones, you know, key when we're in, you're going into the menopause or in the menopause. If you can imagine, it's one of the key components of breast milk that gives this baby immunity and everything else. The baby is only eating the milk and then growing and, and in every way. It's an extraordinary component of that cocktail. And so it can do many things. There's nothing like a, a grown up woman who, you know, sees a problem and decides, okay, I'm going to just sort this out for myself, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to call everybody I know. I'm going to call scientists in Texas. I've I, had enough. I've, I've got no experience in this, but bloody hell, I can see a solution to a problem. Bring me the solutions, people. Love it. It's a suck it and see this, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chew As with so see. many things in the lives of grown-up <laughs> women. So, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming to see us. Thank you for getting involved with the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Annabel Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Subscribe.